0: Well, good morning. Glad to be here and to be with you. It gives us some time to spend some time with mom and dad. Even though we live in the same state, we don't see a whole lot of each other. So this has been a good time to be with them just for a, a couple of days. Open your Bibles to the book of John chapter 17. I do intend for this to be a, a Bible class session. So if you have a comment or an answer to my question, certainly be glad for you to participate in that way. So thus far, you've talked about the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament and perhaps the fulfillment of those in the New. You talked about the deity and the humanity of Christ, and last night we talked about the ministry of Christ. When you put all that together, there's a couple of conclusions that we're going to come to today. First one we'll talk about in Bible class is that we better listen to Jesus. If the prophecies were true and the fulfillments were true, and He was both divine and human while he was on earth and served others like we spoke of last night. The reality is I need to listen to what Jesus has to say. Now, he has a lot of words in the Bible. Now, who can tell me what word he used the most? What word of all the words of Jesus in the letters in red, words in red, what one word appears the most? If I know, want to take a guess? We'll, well, I'll let you lodge a few guesses. Love? No. Follow? Follow? No. Pray? Pray? No. I. These are all good answers and good, good things to talk about, but the answer is Father. no. Father? Father? No. It's on, it's on the top ten. Yeah, we're getting up there now. What did I hear back here? I? I? No. How about the word one? 220 times about he used the word one. Okay? And if you go and do a search of all the times that Jesus used the word one, there are multiple lessons that we can learn. And so since we should listen to Jesus, let's listen to him as he employs uh, the word one this morning. Now, most of them are going to be in the book of Matthew, but I wanted you to turn to John 17 open, open today. Okay? Where, is, where is the Lord's Prayer at in the Bible? Where is the Lord's Prayer you do most mistakenly say that the Lord's Prayer is found in the book of Matthew 6, 9 through 13. That's better termed as the model prayer. Okay, he was teaching us how to pray on the Sermon on the Mount. If you would really want to read the Lord's Prayer, it is in the book of John 17, and really the whole chapter is His prayer. Now my question is, what was His main objective in His prayer in, in John 17? And the answer is found in verse number 11 and verse number 21. Where Jesus says in verse 11, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be what? That they may be one. That they may be one there as we are. Verse number 21, that they all may be one. This was a prayer and plea for God's people to be one. Okay, what's another word for one here? What word could you put in place of one and keep the same meaning? That they all be what? United. United okay, that they all have unity. That they all have peace one with another. And also you might note about the Lord's Prayer here in the book of John 17. He wasn't praying only for His apostles, those that He was with. Did you know that Jesus was praying for you? He says in this prayer, I'm not praying for these alone, but on all of those who might what? All of those who might believe. He's praying for you, and he's praying for us that we all might be all might be one. Okay. Name me some verses in the Bible that have to do with the fact that we need to be united as God's people, have unity among us. You may not know where exactly it is, but you probably know what it says, and we can work on the where together. Okay. Ephesians four and three says. keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. All right. Very good. Alright. And that, very, that first word in that verse is important. And what was that word? Endeavoring. What does the word endeavor mean? It, it, mean, it means it's going to take work. Okay. Unity takes work. It just doesn't happen. Okay. It, ha, it has to be worked on. And for a local group of God's people, like here at Cortez, or at Ogallee, or wherever it is that you're from, it takes work to be unified. Okay. And that's why it's endeavoring to keep the unity. Okay. That's a very good verse. You might jot that one down. What are some other verses about unity? Other passages. Didn't Paul say something that there should be no schisms among you, no divisions among you, that you all speak the same thing, have the same mind, have the same judgment, there be no divisions among you? Who did Paul write those words to? Okay, it's the Corinthians, church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. Okay, the church at Corinth have any issues? Have any problems at Corinth? Yeah, they had multiple issues, didn't they? Apparently one of them was division. What was the division about in the book of 1 Corinthians? You'd have to go a little later on in chapter 1. But some folks were saying, since Paul baptized me, then I am of who? I am of Paul. The folks who were baptized by Apollos were saying that I am of Apollos. Those who were baptized by Peter would say that I am of Peter, or Cephas, as I believe the old King James says. Some of them are correctly saying that I am of Christ, right? And Paul says, I didn't want for you. I I didn't die for you. Apollos didn't die for you. Peter didn't die for you. Who died for you? Jesus. Jesus died for you. So you are of Christ. That was the division there in in Corinth. And he says, you all need to be what? You all need to be one. You need to be united. Any other verses in the Bible about unity that you can think of? That we need to be unified together, frozen together? What, is, what does God think about a discord sower? What does God think about a discord sower? Bible talk about that. What is God's view on those who sow discord among the brethren? What's God think of that person? What's he think of me if I'm the one sowing discord among brethren? Does he like me? No, the Bible doesn't say that, does it? In Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, you have a list of seven things that the Lord hates. A hey, six things the Lord, a seven are an abomination. Them a proud look, a lying tongue, a false witness that speaketh lies, and on and on. The very last one was he that sows what? He that sows discord among brethren. Yeah, he that sows discord among brethren. I might point out that the first five of those are the actions, and then when it gets down to the very last two, it's more personal. He that sows discord among brethren. What is discord? Any of you ever any of you play a, an instrument? Anybody play piano in here? Okay, on your spare time? Okay, I wish I could, but I don't. But when you hear somebody playing the piano beautifully, it's because all their chords are matched, all the notes are perfect. But if if one of those notes are hit incorrectly, all of a sudden it's not it's not a chord, what is it? It's a it's a discord. And how and how quickly can you see or hear that there's a discord going on? It's just like that, isn't it? In the Lord's church, as long as it's humming along the way it should be, frozen together, united in one, everything is fine. But when somebody comes along and sows discord, it's felt how, how soon? It's felt immediately. It's felt immediately. God doesn't take lightly those who sow discord among his brethren. And then the psalmist in Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in what? Dwell together in unity. Okay, it's a good thing. It's a pleasant thing to God for us as God's people to be what? To be one. Okay, and Jesus prayed for that in the book of John chapter 17. Now, let's retreat back to the book of Matthew. We're going to notice a few in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at 29 and 30. Okay, we're listening to the words of Christ. We ought to, since he's divine and human on earth. The Bible prophesied about him. The reality is I need to listen to what he has to say. Matthew five twenty nine and 30. If your right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Verse number 30. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that what? That one, that one member of the other members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast in to hell. Okay, the use of the word one here in Matthew 5, 29 and 30 teaches us a lesson about the importance of self-discipline. Okay, everybody here have their right hand? Looks like it, I don't know if everybody here has the right hand. And everybody here, as far as they can tell, has a right eye that I can see. So therefore, we all are in violation of Matthew 5, 29 and 30, correct? How many of... Is is anybody here going to volunteer to say that I've been perfect with the use of my right eye? Or I've been perfect with the use of my right hand? Nobody there is going to say that, are they? So we're in violation of Matthew 5, 29 and 30, aren't we? Am I? Okay, you ain't looking at me like I'm not sure the answer to that. The answer is no, we're not in violation of Matthew 5, Twenty-nine and thirty. What is Jesus trying to figuratively teach here? That we need to have superior discipline with the way that we use our eyes and the way that we use our hands. Okay. Did anybody's eyes in the Bible get them in trouble? Anybody's eyes get them in trouble? Okay. So I heard. I think. I think everybody said David. Okay. Second Samuel eleven, right? He went out on his roof, and you can read this in the first three verses. He he did what with his eyes? He saw he saw a woman bathing. Okay, of course her name was what? Bathsheba. Okay, what should he have done at that point? Turned away. Okay, turned away. Got, got off the roof. Get out. Okay, before any other further damage occurs. Okay, but when Second Samuel eleven is finished, the man after God's own heart was guilty of what sins? This, let's make a list. What was he guilty of? Lust. Lust. What else? Murder. Murder fornication, deceit. Okay, how was he guilty of murder? What did he do? Who did he murder? Who with his own hands did David murder? Okay. okay. Yeah. Did he, did he do that with his own hands? No, but he was, he was guilty of it by sending him to the front, the hard, hottest part of the battle. Okay, he was responsible for the death of Uriah. That's what he wanted to occur. Or to try to cover up for his mistakes in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Right, who who else had eye problems in the Bible? I Lot did. Okay, Lot. In what way? He looked upon the, on the, he, he took up Abraham's offer to look on the land. and okay. Looked at what he thought was best what was going to benefit him personally. Hmm. Yeah. Instead of thinking about his family. Alright, very good. We're looking for those words like saw or look. And he looked and saw the well-watered plains that would be good for his cattle, right? And okay, the only problem was, he was pitching his tent toward what cities? Sodom and Gomorrah. And he knew what he was getting into, but he was kind of blinded by the green, the green grass, the well-watered plains. Okay, and eventually, that cost the life of who? His wife. Okay, who turned into a pillar of salt. All right. So Lot had some eye problems. Who else? I saw a hand over here. Okay. Yeah, Lot's wife had an issue. We don't know why she turned back. The Bible doesn't explain that. We 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 can make a lesson out of it. Actually, Jesus said in Luke seventeen thirty-two to do what? Remember Lot's wife. Okay. And for one reason or another, we're to remember Lot's wife. Okay. What? Why she turned back? We don't know. It was in disobedience to God. Okay. Now, think about this for just a second. If Law happened to be in front of her, we don't know if he was in front or behind her when all that occurred. Had he been in front of her, he wouldn't have known that his wife had turned into a pillar of salt until he got to the final destination. Else he would have been punished as well. Something to think about. Okay, yes. Noah's sons. Okay, Noah's sons. In what way? They looked upon their father. Okay, they, they looked upon their father in his nakedness. And that just caused all sorts of wrinkles and problems. Okay, yes? Um, Samson had problems with women. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, He had had an infatuation with who? What was her name? Delilah. 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 Yeah. And uh, that cost him some problems. It eventually cost him his life, didn't it? Okay, remember she wanted to know where his strength was at, and he kept telling her all these stories, and all the stories weren't true, and finally... Finally, he was so infatuated he wanted to stay with her. He finally told her the truth, okay, and it eventually led to his demise. Okay, so that you can see, there's a lot of folks in the Bob prob- eye problem in the Bible. Achan, Achan saw the spoils of war and hid them under his tent. That cost him his life and his family's life. Eve saw the fruit, right, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and she ate of the fruit, and so did so did Adam. That's why in First John two, the Bible says there are three avenues of temptation. Lust of the flesh, pride of life, and what else? Lust of the lust of the eye, and yeah, the devil works successfully through the eye. Okay? And uh, we need to have really good discipline with that. Okay, and that's what Jesus is trying to teach here in Matthew five to be disciplined with your eyes. Okay, you remember what Job? You might know what Job said in Job thirty-one verse one. What's a covenant? What's What's a covenant? Agreement. Okay, it's an agreement between how usually between two parties. Okay, and Job said in Job 31, verse 1, I have made a covenant with what? With my eyes, okay? I've made an agreement with my eyes that I will not look, and paraphrasing, I will not look at ladies in a lustful way that I don't have a right to, is basically what he was saying there. Okay, he made a covenant, and it packed an agreement with his eyes. Okay, and it would do well for us to do the same thing. All right, an agreement with our eyes. All right, so superior discipline is called for in Matthew 5, 29 and 30. All right. Matthew 6, verse 24. Matthew six twenty-four. Okay, this is a familiar verse. No man can serve how many masters? No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So the use of the word one here teaches us we can only serve how many gods? Serve just one. Is it possible to serve acceptably two gods at once? Okay, if we accept that there are multiple gods, okay, meaning idols. Okay, and the answer, of course, is what? No, you cannot do that. You cannot have one foot in the kingdom of God trying to serve God while at the same time having your foot in the world trying to live and dabble in the world as well. Serving that God, the God of the world. It's impossible to do that. So what I have to do is get off the proverbial. I've got to get off of the fence and make a choice, make a decision, and make the right one. Make the right decision to serve the living God, the God of heaven and earth, the God of creation. Can you think of a contest in the Bible between one man and 450 servants of an idol, okay, and where it took place. Anybody know who we're talking about here? Elijah. Okay, Elijah, okay, in 1 Kings 18. Okay, the battle on Mount Carmel. Okay, you remember the prophets of Baal started calling to Baal? Okay, this is one of my favorite parts in the Bible. Okay, there are some humorous places in the Bible. and okay, this is one of them. Elijah started making fun of the prophets of Baal. You remember that? What do he tell the prophets of Baal after they... Bell wouldn't rain down fire. What do you say to him? Yeah. Maybe he's maybe, he's, maybe he's old and hard of hearing. Maybe he should talk a little louder. because okay, he can't hear you apparently right now. What else? Maybe he's, maybe he's asleep. Maybe you ought to wake him up. Maybe he's gone on a journey. Maybe he's on vacation. Okay, and he just forgot to tell you. Okay, and just wait a week and maybe he'll come back and then he'll answer you then. Okay. Bell never listened, did he? Okay? In 1 Kings 18, in that story, in verse 21, okay, Elijah said, how long will you be between two opinions? Okay? You have to make a what? You have to make a choice. Serve Baal? Fine, serve Baal. Serve God? Fine, serve God. But you can't do what? But you can't serve both of them. You can't do it. Okay? And that's the point that Jesus is making here in Matthew 6 and verse 24. Okay? What famous verse of the Bible has to do with the choice? I bet, you, I bet some of you have a picture at home or uh, somebody crocheted this. this day, yeah. Service, Joshua right, Joshua twenty four fifteen. As for me and my house, we do what? We choose. We choose to serve the Lord. Okay, and Joshua told the children, you can serve the gods of the Amorites, you can serve the gods on the other side of the flood, but as, as for me and my house, we choose to serve the Lord. And it is a what? It is a choice. God forced you to serve Him? Has God forced any of you to be here today? Okay? Has God ever forced you to serve Him? Okay? And the answer, of course, is no. We're not robots. Okay? God says, choose. I want you to choose me, but I'm going to give you the freedom to choose. Okay? And Jesus says here in Matthew six twenty four, you can't choose both. You've got to choose one. Okay? You've got to choose one and cast your devotion to that one. Okay, just a few verses. Matthew 6 and verse 27. Okay, the context is 25 through 34, about worry, about anxiety. Okay? Now, oftentimes we we uh, expand these verses to mean some things that Jesus really wasn't talking about. Okay, what, did, what was Jesus saying not to worry about in these 10 verses, 25 through 34? Okay, Don't worry about the, ne- the necessities of life. What you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, where you're going to... Live, all those are the necessities of life. Okay? And if you seek God first and put his kingdom first, all these things shall be added unto you down there in verse 33. But look in verse 27. He says, which of you, by taking thought, can add what? Here, here's the word again. Can add one cubit unto his stature. Which of you, by taking thought or being anxious or by worrying, can add one cubit unto his stature? Okay. Do you guys know of any really tall people? What's the tallest person that you know? Okay. Have you ever met an NBA star or somebody's like seven feet tall? Okay. I wonder, apparently they don't worry because they've, they've grown really tall. Because okay. the verse here says you're going to stunt your growth if you worry. So the tall people, I guess, never what? Never worry. Okay. And those who are really short have a problem with height. They must worry all the time because they've stunted their growth. Okay? Is that what Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 6 and verse 27? No, he's talking about, he is talking about growth. He's talking about growth as a person. Okay? And I will not grow as a person, as a child of God, if all I do is what? If all I do is worry. And I'm anxious about everything. Okay? This, we have some phrases in our, in our vocabulary about worry. Okay? Anybody ever called you a worry what? worry more, okay maybe somebody's called you that before you, do, you worry too much okay we have another phrase he worries himself to what he worries himself to death okay now although that's figurative can that be literal sure, sure it can be medical professionals can tell you that you actually can worry yourself to death give yourself ulcers all kinds of problems okay by worrying okay What's the, what's the answer to this? What's the answer to not worrying, not being anxious? Okay, does Jesus, uh, Andy touched on this last night. He, 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 Jesus identifies the problem here, that you worry, that you're too anxious. Okay, does he leave us without answers in this context? Okay, he gives us the answers to it, doesn't he? Okay, he says in verse number 33, one solution to this is put, put God what? Put God first. Make him number one in your life. Okay, and you want to worry about these things. Okay, answer number two is in verse 34. Take one day at a what? Live one day at a time. Did you know that a lot of our anxiety comes as a result? Our worry comes as a result of what's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen next week? What's going to happen a month from now? Am I going to be able to retire nine years from now? Am I going to have enough money to retire in nine years from now? And on and on and on we go about all these things in the future. Okay? When, in fact, we're not even promised tomorrow. I'm not even promised the rest of what? Today. Okay? Proverbs 27.1, Boast not thyself of tomorrow. You do not even know what a day may bring forth. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to live the rest of this day. Okay? Why would I borrow trouble from tomorrow? Okay? The advice that you give to your friends and to yourself, live one day at a time, is acceptable in about every problem that anybody ever has in their life, whether it's marital problems, financial problems, spiritual problems, uh, labor problems in trying to find a job, or maybe they're going to lose a job, or they're being threatened to lose. Any problem that you or your friends have, live one day at a time, is a good is a good advice to have and to give to yourself and to others. Okay? But I will not grow, you will not grow as a person, a person of God, if all I do is what? if all I do is worry and I am anxious. All right, Matthew 7, verse 21. Moving on through the book of Matthew. Matthew seven 21. First three words are what? Not every one. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Hey, okay, Art, there's some pretty... Important lessons to learn from the use of this word one here. Matthew 7 verse 21. Am I phrase it this way? Which one person will be saved? Which one kind of a person will be saved? Okay, and what is the answer to that? Is only one kind of a person going to be saved? Is Is that a true statement? Only one kind of a person is going to be saved. Is that true or false? That's true. Okay, that's true. Okay? And if you don't believe that, you might read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24-27, through 27, when Paul compares life to a race. He says, don't you know that they all run a race, but only how many receives the prize? Only one. Okay? One kind of person is going to receive the prize. What kind of individual, one, is going to be saved? Okay. And it's, it's answered right here in this verse, isn't it? The one... Is, is, as both of you said, the one that does what? The one that does the will of himself. Does it say that? Now, the one that does the will of the government. Does it say that? This is one that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Right, so, the use of this word one here in Matthew 7, verse 21, tells us the importance of obedience, of obedience to the Lord's will. Okay? Now, I may not be telling you anything new, but if I am, I hope that I make you aware of it. But there's an element among the Lord's body now who are poo-pooing, if you will, the idea of obedience. Okay, They say when, when I get up and preach today, or when you get up and preach, that we need to obey God's law, that we're equating obedience with me earning my salvation. Okay, There's an element in the Lord's body now that is moving in that direction that... you don't talk about obedience, okay, that I don't have, I can't do anything, I don't do anything to gain salvation from my sin, or I don't do anything to have a hope of life after this earth, okay, is that true or false? That's false, okay. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan in the book of Luke, if you're going to read that sometime, okay, why did Jesus tell the story of the Good Samaritan? That's a trick question, by the way. Okay, there was a question that caused him to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. What was the question? Okay, who is my neighbor is the secondary question. Okay, There was a question prior to that. Okay, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, That's the original question. What must I do? And I want you to focus on what must I what? What must I do? To inherit eternal life. Okay, and then there was a conversation about some of the uh, t- of the Ten Commandments, and then the question of loving my neighbor comes up, and the fellow willing to justify himself says, "Well, who is what? Who is my neighbor?" Okay, so Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Okay, and at the end of it, he says, "Now, who was neighbor? Who was the neighbor to this fellow who was beaten up?" And of course, the answer was the Samaritan. And Jesus said, "Go and what? Do." Go and do thou likewise. Don't let somebody tell you that there's nothing that you have to do in order to gain salvation from sin. You see that here in Matthew 7, verse 21? He that does. He that does the will of my Father. All right. Matthew 13, verse 46. We're getting into some of the area of parables now in the book of Matthew, the few that are recorded here. Okay, here's two, two short parables. Okay, one of them is just a verse long. Okay, but in Matthew 14 and verse 45, Jesus says again, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. Who, when he had found... How many pearls? One. One pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. How many pearls was it? One pearl of great price. And not one pearl of great price was being compared to what? To the value of the kingdom of heaven. Now the next question is, what is the kingdom of heaven then in this text? What does the, when you see the word kingdom in the New Testament, most usually it's making reference to what? Church. Church okay? There are some few exceptions to that. Okay. But in most of the time, when the, the New Testament uses the word kingdom, it's referring to the church. Okay? So the value of the church is being compared to the value of this pearl, one pearl of great price. Now, just in case you're trying to figure out in your mind, how do we know that kingdom and church are interchangeable terms? You might look at Matthew 16, 16 through 19. Okay? Remember, Jesus asked his apostles, who do men say that I am? Some say you're this guy, some say you're this guy. Okay, but then then he turns his attention to the apostles. He says, but who do you say that I am? What did Peter say? That thou art Christ, the what? The Son son of the the living God. Okay, and in response to that, Jesus says what? In Matthew 16. Okay, if you just turn over there just real quickly. Okay, he says, I I will give unto thee, uh, verse 18, he says, thou art Peter upon this rock, I will build my what? I will build my Church. church. okay. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Look at verse 19. And I will give unto thee, that is to the Peter, the keys of what? The keys of the kingdom. Alright, so here we see then that when you see the word kingdom, often it's interchangeable with the word church. Now, what is so valuable about the church? What makes the church important? What makes it valuable? Who paid for it, okay, who, who paid for it and what paid for it? Okay, who paid for the church? Okay, Jesus and His blood. Okay, His blood purchased the church. Okay, where do we learn about that at? You and I both know that because we've read the Bible. Okay, but if you and I are studying with somebody in the world, they may may expect to know where the Bible says that. Okay, and and they ought to. And we ought to be able to show them. Where in the Bible does it say that the blood of Christ purchased the church? Okay, remember when Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20? From the city of Miletus, he says that in Acts 20, verse 28. That's what makes the church valuable. Now, by the way, that's an argument against uh, Jesus being rejected when he came into this world, so fiercely rejected by the Jews that he was unable to establish the kingdom. So as an interim solution, he set up what? I'm not teaching this, but this is what what premillennialism teaches. That he couldn't set the kingdom up, but as an interim solution, he set up what? He set up the church as a band-aid, all right? until so he could come back and set up his kingdom in Jerusalem for a thousand years. That will not get into all that, okay? I'm going to tell you something. If the church is simply a stand-in, a band-aid to cover up a problem that, J- that God and Jesus did not anticipate, it, it was an awful steep price for a, uh, for a stand-in. The price of the church was the blood of Christ. I think it's more valuable than something that's just simply a, a band-aid. Okay, what makes the church valuable besides who purchased it? What purchased it? It's members. Okay, it's members, the family of God. Okay, can you imagine living life without the family of God behind you? Okay, the greatest family in the world is what? The family of God. Okay, we, talk, we read about it in Ephesians 3, the word family ref- referring to the church. Ephesians 3 and verse 15, family of God. Okay, What's so, what does the family of God do for you? that you can't find anywhere else? Okay, support, encouragement, edification. When, when, it's, when it's time for me to weep, what's, what are the members of the flock going to do? They're going to weep with me. And when it's time to rejoice, what are they going to do with me? They're going to rejoice with me. We see that in Romans 12 and verse 15. And 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the fact that this is one body, but the body's made up of many what? Many members. Okay, and when one member suffers, we all what? We all suffer with it. And one, when one member rejoices and, or is honored, we rejoice with him. This is a great family, the family of God. Okay? And that's what makes the Lord's church valuable. It helps me get to heaven based on the family that I have. What else? What else makes the church valuable? Where does God place the saved? Where does he deposit the saved at? In the church. Okay. The church is valuable because of the family, but because of its population. okay Where did we learn that the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved? Acts two and verse forty seven okay Where in the Bible does God place the saved other than the church? does he? There is nowhere else. The Lord added to the church those who were being saved. okay He deposits them into the saved. who does he deposit into the church those who are those here are what? Baptized. Okay? And the Lord adds them to the church. It okay? makes the church valuable. makes the church valuable. Okay? And we need, to, we need to find value in it. Value in becoming members of it. All right? And living with each of the members. All right? To find the support that we previously mentioned. Okay, Matthew 18, verse 35. Matthew 18, 35. This is the very end of a parable about the unforgiving servant. You recall that parable? Okay. And again, quite often parables were a response to a question. Okay. And, and the question here was from Peter. He Lord, how often should I forgive my brother? Okay. And Peter was willing to go all the way up to what? Oh, I, I'm going to go all the way up to seven. Okay. You ever felt like a fly on the wall or this small when you found out the real answer to something? Peter's about to feel that way because Jesus is, I'm I'm not telling you seven times, but what? Seventy times seven. Peter, I want you to keep a tally mark on all of your brothers, all of your friends. Once they ask you to forgive them the 491st time, you can tell them, I'm cutting you off now. Is that what he's teaching? He's not teaching that at all. What he's teaching is when somebody asks for forgiveness, what do you do? You forgive him. Then he tells the story, doesn't he, of the unforgiving servant. Verse 35 now. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every one, every one his brother, their trespasses. Okay, this this one teaches us an important lesson about forgiveness. Okay, somebody refresh my memory about, real quickly, about this story. Okay, the first guy who owed money Okay, how much did he owe? I mean, just put it, just put it in terms t- today. How much money did this first man owe? Okay, it truly, it truly was an unpayable debt. I extrapolated it one time. Okay, but in order for this fella to work long enough to pay off his debt, he'd have to have 600,000 working days. Okay, now you do go home and do the math on how many years that is. You don't live long enough to be able to pay off this debt. But yet, when he begged for mercy and begged for more time, his, his Lord said what? I forgive you. I'm not going to give you more time. I'm not going to lessen what you owe. I'm going <laughs> to what? I'm going to forgive you this unpayable debt. Okay, now this fellow turns around and finds somebody that owes him some money, right? And how much does the second guy owe? About Okay. Yeah, about a week's wage, maybe. Okay, a week's wage. And when this guy begged for mercy... Okay, and wanted to have some more time what if this, this guy who had just been forgiven this unpayable debt turns around and is unable to do what? unable to forgive somebody such a small minuscule in comparison to what he owed Okay, and Jesus used that to teach when somebody comes to you and asks for forgiveness what do you do? you forgive them okay, is forgiveness hard sometimes? sometimes it is it depends on what was done or what was said, but forgiveness must be given when somebody asks for it. Okay, what kind of game am I playing with my life if I don't forgive others? But the good game? No. What did Jesus say about me not being willing to forgive others? Yeah. If you don't forgive men their trespasses, the heavenly Father will not forgive yours. There, in Matthew six fourteen and fifteen. Okay, it's a, it's a dangerous gamble. For me to withhold forgiveness and hold a grudge and maybe one day I'll get around to it. Okay? We need to forgive others when they come and ask for it. Okay, what do we got, about four minutes? Okay, Matthew 19, verse 6. We should be able to cover this. Okay. Matthew 19, verse 6. Once again, Jesus is being queried. He's being asked questions. Okay? About, and the question, just so we're clear, was not about remarriage, by the way. Yeah, the question was, for how many reasons may I what? If we just return the question, for how many reasons may I divorce? Okay? That's the question. Okay? The question was not, how many reasons may I divorce and then be remarried? It's important to understand what the question was so that we understand clearly what the answers are given. Okay? And so, in the midst of him answering, he says in verse 6, He says, wherefore they, that is the husband and wife, they are no more twain, but they're what? How many flesh are they? One flesh. One flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Okay. What, what's God's plan for marriage? What's God's plan for marriage? Okay. One man to be married to one man for one lifetime. Is that God's plan for marriage? No. Okay. Now, did Jesus, did Jesus condemn homosexuality? Show me where he said... Homosexuality is a sin. Where did he, he say that at? Did he say that? I'll save you some time. He didn't say that. Okay. However, in this context, he says in verse number 4, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them what? Male and female. That's Jesus' condemnation of homosexuality. Okay, so God's plan for marriage is one man to be married to one woman to remain married for one a lifetime okay that's been God's plan for marriage for how long ever since the beginning you see that in Genesis 2 and 24 okay by the way Genesis was during the patriarchal period you see it in Matthew 19 and verse 4 through 6 that a man leaves his father and mother uh, creates a marriage creates one flesh that's during the mosaical period when Jesus was living and then Paul reiterates that in the book of Ephesians 5 21 through 31 that a the man leaves his father And and cleaves to his wife. That's during the dispensation that you and I live. And there's only going to be three periods of time, by the way. And in each period of those times, God says, one man, one woman, for life. Right? Yes? Okay. Right. Correct. Yeah, Paul talked about the homosexuality, didn't he? Yeah, he, he, he talked about it several ways there. Hmm? In Matthew thirteen? Well Matthew sixteen, eighteen. Okay, yes. yes. Uh huh. Romans sixteen, sixteen. If it, it put a name it couldn't right. just in the church. Mm-hmm. The church of Christ. Right. Because I came out of Baptist Church and I wasn't thinking Okay. these being saved in the church. Right. So I just thought, you know, we like said the church. All right. I just, you know, it, you could talk about any church, but mm-hmm. the church of Christ are the kingdom of the kingdom. Okay. Okay, Okay. yeah, Romans 16 talks about the churches of Christ salute you. I don't think it's your question, uh, but the plurality there is the word church in the Bible is used in two different senses, isn't it? It's used in a universal sense, and what other sense? Local, Local. okay? (laughs) The churches of Christ there in Romans 16 are referring to different local churches that Paul is making reference to. Yeah, church of Christ, by the way, is not the name of the church. Just so we're clear. Okay? It, what is it? It's a description. Okay? Church is the called out. Okay? We have been called out of the world of darkness into a relationship with God. The word of meaning belonging to. And, of course, we belong to who? We belong to Christ. Okay? Having said this, I want to be clear. So I don't want you to go away saying that he said this. Okay? We have some places now that are removing the description, church of Christ, off of their buildings. Okay? Off of their signs. Okay? And the argument is labels divide people. That's the argument. So we're not going to put labels on anything. Okay? My estimation is Jesus died for the church. Okay? He's the founder of it. He's the purchaser of it. Okay? He deserves the glory in the description of the church. It's the church of who? Church of Christ. Okay? And I'll just t- stand here right here in front of you tell you. I'm not ashamed to tell you that I'm a member, being a member of a church described as... The Church of Christ. Okay? And uh, I know my time's up, isn't it? But uh, we could get into a whole long detail about that. All right? But I encourage you to go, we only cover maybe seven or eight ones. Go find the other 215. All right? See what lessons you can learn from uh, the ones of Jesus. Okay? And you could develop a whole uh, series for yourself. Thank you for your participation.